0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace D.C. Network in Northeast D.C. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. As a kid, I came to know and become familiar with this phrase that I'd never heard of before through my grandfather. My grandfather taught me the meaning of the phrase, one person's trash is another person's treasure. Because my grandfather's fourth job after he retired uh, was that he decided to, to go out and sort of do the work of being a junk man. My grandfather would see people throwing things away that he knew perfectly well could be reclaimed. He would go out and he would collect those things and and he would bring them back to his garage and he would work on them and he would fix them. And he would give them away to other people to use. And I remember one conversation with my grandfather, he was investing some of his grandfatherly wisdom into me. And I said, Pat, why do you keep on collecting all this trash? It, It hadn't settled in yet. Why do you keep on going out and collecting all this junk? I I don't understand why you keep doing this. He said, son, let me tell you something. Some people look at these things and they don't see any value in them. They just throw them away and they go buy a new thing. It's wasteful. They don't appreciate that it could be fixed. But when I look at these things, I see what they could be. When I look at these things, I decide that I know how to fix them and I'm going to make them right. This morning, I want to ask you what is it that you see when you look at the church? What do you see when you look at the church? It has become a very common thing to hear people trash the church, to hear people talk poorly about the church, to constantly harp. On the church and this is understandable when it comes from people outside of the church I get that that makes sense to me but what doesn't make sense to me is the way that Christians trash the church the way that Christians constantly talk bad about the church as if by some miracle this is going to get them in with their non-christian neighbors and then some way they're going to get those non-christian neighbors to want to Become part of the very thing they were trashing. It doesn't make any sense. We all know that it's the case that we tend to love the things that people we get close to love. If you get close to Erwin Ince, you might find yourself loving CrossFit. If you get Close to Christy St. Pierre, you might find yourself loving nutrition and fitness. If you get close to Joe Littlepage, you might find yourself loving a variety of music. If you get close to me, I'm going to make you love some barbecue. Bless his name. But let me ask you this question What is it that you will come to love if you get close to Jesus? If you get close to Jesus, you will come to love grace. If you get close to Jesus, you will come to love mercy. If you get close to Jesus, you will start to love seeing people get things that they don't deserve. Namely, an invitation to the kingdom. If you get close to Jesus, hear me, you will love the church. And if you do not love the church, The problem's not just the church. It's you. If you do not love the church, then the sign is that you're not as close to Jesus as you may think you are. Because Jesus loves the church. And he wants his people to love the church like he loves the church. To think about the church like he thinks about the church. This is what... Our forebearers in the faith used to mean when they said, we are to think God's thoughts after him and to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. We must love like Jesus loves the church. We live in an age of what you might call churchless Christianity churchless Christianity where people think they can be a strong Christian by being disconnected from the church Where people think they can be spiritually vital and healthy and thriving while being disconnected from the church We're familiar with the impact of modernity whether or not we would use the fancy language or not that individualism is running rampant and it's celebrated That there is a very very low Ability for people to commit or I should say low willingness for people to commit To commit in any meaningful way to commit beyond saying yeah. 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 I'm a part of that group. Yeah Yeah, yeah, I go to that church. Yeah, I'm on the rolls I'm talking commitment in terms of faithfulness. I'm talking commitment in terms of showing up I'm talking commitment in terms of making sacrifices that cost us in order to belong There's a low bar of commitment these days and yes there are many suspicions that people have of the church suspicions of church leadership and a lot of these things we must acknowledge and admit have been brought on the church by itself by the church's own failures by the church's own egregious departures from Jesus and his way and his and his calling and his word But even though we can and must acknowledge the failures and the sinful shortcomings of the church, I want you to join me this fall in entering into this series on the church. And the first thing I want to start with, the first thing I want to implant in your minds and hearts is that you must love the church like Jesus loves the church. And let me be clear about that not the church in the abstract, not the church in the ethereal, not just the invisible church. I'm talking about the church that is right here gathered in this building. I'm talking about the real brothers and sisters, the real institution that we are a part of today. We must love the church. There is no such thing as loving The church in the abstract it's nothing but sentimentality unless you love the real physical church to which you are a belonger in the here and now so let's begin our series this morning by starting with the head of the church All through this series, we're going to talk about the the, the the fill-in-the-blank of the church. The blank of the church. The blank of the church. And today we start with the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this passage through two points this morning as we consider his administration and his fullness. His administration and his fullness. So let's begin with our first point. His administration. We're familiar with the language of, of headship whether we realize it or not. We talk about people being the head of a company or the head of an organization. We talk about them being the leader of the organization. They're the primary voice. They set the tone. They cast the vision. And as we begin to consider the church, we must always begin to define the church by its relationship to Jesus Christ, its head. There's no such thing as rightly defining the church without defining the church or understanding the church with respect to its head, Jesus Christ. And we begin by seeing him as the head. And at the very beginning of God's story, humanity had a head. His name was Adam. And Adam was the representative of his people, all of humanity. And as God designed it, as it went for Adam, so it would go for Adam's posterity for his people and we know the story that Adam made choices that brought his people into ruin that brought all of humanity into ruin you might say well I did not elect Adam to be my head I I did not choose Adam to be my representative but regardless of whether you chose him to be your representative these are the facts on the ground according to God's design. And the way that it works is like this. If you're watching a sporting event and you see one player commit a foul or a penalty, you recognize that the whole team gets penalized. And that's the way it worked in Adam. But the beauty of God's story is that God sent another representative, a new head. The language of that is called federal headship. Someone say federal headship, that means legal representation. Adam was our legal representative. And Paul says in another place that all people are either in Adam or in Christ. Christ becomes the last Adam. And he becomes the representative of his people. And so his headship we see is a saving headship. This is the first thing we need to see about his leadership over his people. It's a saving headship. Look through the passage. The passage begins in verse three. And Paul says, he begins with a eulogy, a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. What you see in this text is Paul begins to spell out for us what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church. What is the headship of Jesus? The first thing you see is it's a saving headship. Even as, in this text, obscures the text. It should be since he has blessed us, since he has chose us. And what do we have in union with Christ? Paul centers this thing around union with Christ. I want you to see what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church. And this is going somewhere, y'all. This is not meaningless theological talk. This is going somewhere. Everyone in this building is a theologian. The question is, are you going to be a good one, a faithful one, or a bad one, an unfaithful one? Are you going to understand the scriptures rightly divided, or are you going to go on your emotions and your good feelings about God? and wind up in error. We must stick to the text and it's rich. Look at what we have in Jesus. Verse four, the father chose us in Christ. Just like any of you husbands chose your wife and you wives chose your husband. He has the right, the divine prerogative to set his love on people and he chose us in Christ. He saw us through the lenses of Christ before the foundation of the world and set his love on us on the basis of Jesus and his finished work. Verse five, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. These are not doctrines to be resisted, but embraced and cherished. The Father, verse six, blessed us with grace in Christ. Verse seven, the Father redeemed and forgave us in Christ. Verse eight, the Father lavished wisdom and insight upon us in Christ. Verse nine, the will and purpose of God the Father were set forth in Christ. How do you know what God's up to? Jesus is the Rosetta Stone of God's purposes and plans in the world. You see that though this world is a Good Friday kind of world, God says it's gonna be an Easter Sunday kind of world one day. And we see that in Jesus. Verse 10, God the Father unites all things in heaven and earth in Christ. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Verse 12, we have hope in Christ. Verse 13, the Father has sealed us with the Holy Spirit in Christ, marking us out as protected belongers. The administration of Christ is a saving administration, but it's also an authoritative administration. Verses 19 through 21, look at the text. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You know there's a difference between authority and power, don't you? Authority and power a man might be able to exercise power over a woman to abuse her. But that's not authority. Authority is the divine right to exercise power. And what we see in this text is that Jesus exercises his headship with authority and power. It's both, and the power that he works and the outworking of his administration is the same power that rose him from the dead. Paul is talking about the exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up of Jesus above above all. What does Jesus stand above? Pick something. Pick something. And Paul does not limit his scope to the physical world. He doesn't limit his scope to your marriage. He doesn't limit his scope to your addiction. He doesn't limit the scope of Jesus' authority to your sin struggle. He doesn't limit the scope of his authority to your work life or your sex life or to anything about our existence in this created order. No, he says that even the unseen powers, the unseen world, Jesus has power over it all. Everything is under his feet. To say that it's under his feet, you should imagine a king sitting on a throne with his foot on a footstool. And any time a king conquered a place, those former rivals of his, they would submit to the king and they would come and they would bow before the throne of the king and they would kiss his foot. He would put his foot on their neck and they would kiss his foot as a sign of loyalty And his foot on their neck showed his authority over them and his willingness to exercise that authority on their behalf. To be under his feet is to say that there is not one square inch of all of existence that is not under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus rules in his church through his word and through his spirit. Through his word and through his spirit. And... According to God's design, the way in which God safeguards, the way in which Christ safeguards the exercise of his authority through his word and his spirit, is through the established leadership he has given the church. It's through officers. It's through elders and pastors. This is the way we're going to see this develop, but it begins with the headship of Christ and his administration. But next, and I want to dig more into this right now, And I really want you to dial in on what we're about to talk about right now. It's the second point. His fullness. What is the fullness of the head, Jesus Christ? Look at verses 15 through 16 and then verses 22 through 23. I'm pulling this from the text. Not from my particular church tradition. Y'all hear me? This is the text. Verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I want you to see the Apostle Paul's thinking in this text. He gives thanks for the Ephesians, not just because they love Jesus. And you know many of us, that's enough. Just get them to love Jesus. And I want you to love Jesus. But that's not the end of Paul's thanksgiving. Paul says, I give thanks because you love, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Where do you stand on that point? Love toward all the saints. What about the ones that embarrass me? Love toward all the saints. What about the ones who have sinned real bad? Love toward all the saints. What about the ones that have wounded me and hurt me? Love toward all the saints. Paul is giving you not just content, but a model, a way of seeing what Christian maturity is like. If you don't have love for all the saints, you can scarcely call yourself mature. Don't impress yourself with your own spirituality if you don't have love for all the saints. Love, not just as you define it, but love as he defines it. It's a hard word. I'm acknowledging this is a hard word. No one feels the difficulty of this more than the person who sees the majority of your junk. More than the person who who bears the weight of the things that burden you. Your elders who love you, who would like to take a day off, but your pressures and your life and your hardships and your hurts keep pressing in. And we have concern for you and love for you. And that's the calling that God has given us. Love for the saints as Jesus defines it. Paul celebrates faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints, do you? Do you? Do you make it a regular practice to repent of your failure to live in love for all the saints? And when Paul says your love for all the saints, he's not just talking about scattered individual Christians, he's talking about, guess what? The church. Your love for the church. But look at this, verses 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see what Paul is saying about the church? It's something that he's teaching us but it's also a way of thinking that he wants us to take on. We see the church as an embarrassment. Paul sees the church as the fullness of Christ. He sees the church as something beautiful. Let me put it this way. You may see the church as trash, but Paul sees the the church as treasure because Jesus sees the church as treasure. He's committed to the church. He loves the church. He serves the church. He won't abandon the church. And guess what that means for us if we're going to be like Jesus and follow Jesus? Uh We must love the church. We must commit to the church. We must serve the church. We must be for the church if we want to be like Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Don't make that a sentimental Hallmark card kind of thing because you got warm fuzzies in your heart. Right, right. <laughs> That's not Christian spirituality. This is giving us a very challenging word in a day and age where commitment is waning, where we are chasing things, trying to give things to our kids, putting them in activity, trying to get all of these accolades and accomplishments in their lives, and all the while, we're passing off a callous disregard for God's people, for God's church. That's the thing. Your, your relationship to the church is not just about you. It's about your kids. It's about, the, it's about the next generation. It's about our neighbors. As I said earlier, why would anyone want to be a part of this thing if you don't seem to want to be a part of it in any meaningful way? Why would they grow to love it if you don't love it? Why would they come to serve if you don't? Why would they commit if you won't? Yeah. This is witness, y'all. Do you, Listen, I know that there is an aspect to witness that looks like speaking the message clearly, giving out a tract, if you will. But there's a, a fuller, more robust picture of witness. And part of the way we witness to the glory of Jesus is we commit to those that he committed to to show the kind of love that he shows and to demonstrate what his kingdom is all about. People will never really get what the kingdom is about unless we show them Uh and tell them. It's both and, not either or. Uh You've ever heard that phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary use words? That's trash. The gospel is a verbal proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And he comes with transforming and saving authority, that he's a physician who has come for the sick. That's good news. You got to speak it. But speaking it without showing it undermines it, it cuts at the value of it in the eyes of our neighbors. There is a major error that we don't value the church like God does, nor appreciate what God is doing in the church and through the church. The church is his fullness. Do you know what that means? That means if you want to experience the fullness of God's grace, you must belong to the church. Don't get quiet. That's what it means. If you want to experience the fullness of God's mercy, you must belong to the church. If you want to experience the fullness of God's love, you must belong to the church. You will never get God's love until you are loved by other broken people who are feelingly striving to love you in Jesus' name it becomes something that's in the ether. It doesn't become real. It's like talking about grace, but then when I want to treat you to lunch, no, 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 that can't, not. Oh, no, that, that's where grace gets real, in the tangible, and the lived, bumping up against one another, in the church. We have this churchless Christianity, this take it or leave it kind of relationship to the church, But the historic church would say things like, there is no salvation outside of the church because the church is the buttress and the pillar of truth. There is no ordinary means of salvation outside of the church. That's what the church historic would say because the church is remaining faithful to the message of the gospel. The church is staying true to holding out the truth of Christ. The church is staying true to loving neighbor and serving the poor. And if you are disconnected, it won't be long before your enemy, the devil, deceives you and shipwrecks you and you are lost and you abandon the faith. You might say, no, 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 never me. I'm strong in my faith, that's pride. No one ever prepares to abandon the faith. No, you just drift. That's why people would say of the church, she's unfaithful, but she's my mother. I couldn't abandon her, and yes, a her, because the church is the bride of Christ. I've said this before and I'm gonna say it again. You and I, you may think, are on pretty good terms, but if you made a practice of mistreating my wife, if you made a practice of talking bad about her, if you made a practice of pointing out all her flaws all the time and never had a good word about her, if you if you were 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 uh, 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 just just disrespectful toward her, you and I are gonna have problems. There might be some furniture moving off in right here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's an illustration to say that Jesus loves his bride, and we must never fall into the pattern of disrespecting her or devaluing her or talking bad about her in ways that never allow any glimpses of light to come through. It's not, it's not acknowledging the faults of the church. We must do that with courage and honesty and humility. But it's about the regularity of your message. What are you prone to do? When your non-Christian friends talk bad about the church, do you join in with them? Or do you say, well, you know, you might not have the whole picture. You might not have the whole picture. you ever considered that? Listen, here's the deal. People are practicing talking about all the bad in the church, but here's the thing you need to appreciate. There is more good than we can identify about the church than we are prone to recognize, and I wanna say a little bit about it. The Romans, back in the ancient days, were perplexed by Christian charity. It first arrived as a significant social phenomenon with the emergence of the church. Do you like the idea of people giving to the poor? Do you like the idea of crowdsourcing for someone in need? Do you like the idea of global uh, outfits that, in the name of Jesus, try to pursue justice and feed the hungry? Yeah. You know who popularized that? The church. That's right. But we must remember that this is not why Christ loves the church. Hospitals as a social phenomenon began through church initiative in the fourth century. Even before this, this the, the ancient world could not understand why the church was so ready to heal and comfort the lowly, sick, and diseased. Church efforts in healthcare continue globally today, especially in many of the world's poorest regions. But this is not why Christ loves the church. Universities and formal institutions, are you proud of your academic credentials? The only reason why there was an academic credential for you to get is because of the church. Places of higher learning were pioneered by the church beginning in the 11th and 12th centuries. Modern science emerged from these institutions and very often funded by church folk and church institutions, developed by church folk. But this is not why Christ loves the church. The revolutionary ideas of the fundamental equality of all human beings and the sanctity of life comes from the church. The the widespread social acceptance was affected by the church. But this is not why Christ loves the church. The church's teaching in relation to marriage, adultery, polygamy, male responsibility, and the dignity of wives, girls, widows, celibates, and orphans massively improved the standing of women in society. Oh, I know. You wear your shirts, and yes, you announce your politics on the social media, but before there was a social media talking about the dignity of women, when all of the world was despising women, the church was fighting for the dignity of women and little girls. That's right. That's right. It was little girls when they were born, they suggested the Romans, were you could just throw them out. They weren't worth anything, but Christians were going to reclaim them. The dignity of women is a gift from the service of the church, but this is not why Christ loves the church. All this, not to mention the church's extraordinary contributions to music, art, architecture, law and jurisprudence, the popularization of literacy. But this is not why Christ loves the church. All of the good that the church has given the world and all of the good that the church has done in the world in the name of Christ has come as a result of its faithfulness to Christ, and any of the bad has come when it has departed from Christ. But even in its departures, even over the long arc of history, God's Spirit continues to work through the church for the good of the world, and so must you. So must you. You must belong. You must belong, you must stop riding the fence. You must stop sitting on the fence and go all in in the church. And go all in for the church, why? Because Jesus did. It's about Jesus, our lives, our witness, it's about him. And if we hope to be like him and reflect his glory in the world, then we must do the same. Christ will never love the church for the good that she does. And he will never hate the church for the bad that she does. Do you hear me? And so we must follow him. Never just loving the church for the good that it has done. And never hating the church for the bad that it has done. But having a gaze on the church that is, that is set by the gaze of Christ over the church. Moving from the abstract to the specific local church that is Grace Mosaic here today. Or maybe you aren't called to be a part of this community. Maybe you belong to another community and you're visiting us today. Love that church like Christ loves that church. Serve that church like Christ serves that church. Commit to that church like Christ commits to that church. How are we gonna love our neighbors and love our enemies if we can't even love our brothers and sisters? How, please tell me, how? We won't, we can't. The church is where we learn to love the rest of the world. Jesus wants you to love the church like he loves the church. I want you to lay down your defenses over this fall and receive the word of God implanted in your souls and seek him in faith and repentance for the changes you need to make in your life, to make adjustments, to cut things out of your life or your schedule, to add things into your life and schedule. We talk all the time about loving our neighbors and committing to our place in our neighborhood Now it's time for us to talk about committing to God's church and loving God's church and start in your home. Start in your home. Grow up in the faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus over this series. To listen to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at Mosaic.